and please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, we're continuing our series from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6. This morning we are giving our attention to an account of Jesus' return to his hometown of Nazareth small rural village community in the region of Galilee. Jesus returns for the first time to Nazareth since his public ministry began. And we find in this brief account, I'm only going to be reading the first six verses, that some of those who had the opportunity to know Jesus the best, for they had grown up with him, would have the hardest time believing that he is who he claims to be. This is God's word. May we give our attention to it this morning. Chapter 6, verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Jose and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word here, written by Mark, preserved by you, and now read aloud to us. We thank you, Father, that through your spirit, you draw near to each of us by your word. We pray you would gather our attention and, and fix it now here in these six short verses, Lord. We pray that you would silence the distractions 
that would easily cause us to miss what you are saying through your word to us. Jesus, we pray not only that you would, through these verses, address the danger of familiarity that can reside in each of our hearts, but Lord, diagnose the, the ways unbelief can cause us to ignore and even ultimately reject the Son of God, the Savior, and our Redeemer. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In a message I've entitled, The Danger of Familiarity, I want to give particular attention to a verse in Mark's gospel, which I discovered, and you now discover with me, is only used once in the entire gospel before us, and that is verse 6. It says, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his hometown audience. He marveled. It's a sentence unlike any sentence we have read so far in the gospel. And there's only one other place in the four gospels that the word marveled is used again, and it's used to describe the response of the Roman centurion when he confesses that Jesus' crucifixion, this must be the Son of God. So may we marvel this morning by God's grace at the gracious warning, and may we respond by God's grace through his word and marvel anew at Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. How many of you have seen the commercial by Geico, the insurance company? This is not an endorsement, nor do they support my public ministry in any way. Uh, we, Linda and I have watched this because I am, admittedly, a college football addict. And last night we were watching college football, the Notre Dame-Ohio State game, and I think this ad is so good that they aired it more than once. Maybe I'm just dreaming that I see this ad after I see it. But it's a, it's a family. It's a father and his daughter standing outside their home, beautiful home. And they are acknowledging that they have a weed problem. Not a, not a marijuana weed problem like we have in Massachusetts, but a weed problem, right? Weeds are growing, and they can't control the weeds. And so they're standing there, and they're talking, and you see these vines growing up and poking the young daughter. And, and, uh, and then they move to inside the house, and the, the, the vines, these weeds, have now entered the house, and they're running up the stairs. And I think at one point they're sitting on the couch, and uh, one weed, while they're sitting there, reaches in and flips the popcorn bowl, and another weed grabs the remote. Are you tracking with me? Have you seen this? You guys are looking at me like, just listen to him. He is a lunatic up there this morning. <laughs> and there's this one scene, which I just love. It, it so captures how I handle crisis in gardening, uh, where the father <laughs> comes running in the door with this 
weed whacker. I mean, these weeds now have just taken over the home. And he's standing there at the, the bottom of the stairs with this weed whacker, and he's barking out orders to the girls. And they're just everywhere. And he said, the girl asks him, Daddy, should we get the chemicals? You know, like, should we get the pesticide, whatever it is? Should we get the weed, weed aside? And he says, yes, get the weed spray. And, and then, uh, then it's Geico. Da -da 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 -da. You know, it's, it's great. So don't look it up now. I think in this story, there's a spiritual weed that is identified. And whether you're a Christian or perhaps you're listening, welcome if you're on the stream and you're exploring what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. The weed of unbelief not only has not been fully addressed, but maybe spreading. Spreading in a way that causes us to fail to marvel at Jesus Christ. And when we fail to marvel, where we, when, we, when we falter in our faith and unbelief has begun to, to, if you will, make its inroads into our soul, we not only stop marveling, but Jesus becomes really familiar. So much so that when you know you're doing wrong, the sting of conviction doesn't follow. When you know you haven't been spending time with the Lord, however you express that, the desire to spend time with the Lord isn't there. That may be the weed of unbelief. Or you've experienced, as we all have in this world, and the disciples will, rejection for your Christian beliefs, disappointments in relationships, they're mentioned here, discouragement due to dashed hopes, deep deep discouragements that like puncture wounds, you know, they, they may heal over superficially, but, but nonetheless, they fester there. I, I was aware of this yesterday, just thinking back in recent years and how the Lord really had to bring me back in some ways, not realizing that may have been unbelief due to relational conflict because I began to doubt the Lord's goodness and didn't address it sufficiently. And so Jesus became familiar but I stopped marveling. The psalmist says in Psalm 118, let us marvel at the things God has done. For his salvation is good. It's the final verse of Psalm 118. So we're going to marvel this morning as we consider this, and we're going to do so through two topics that I think the text helps us with. And the first is this, Jesus' hometown response, which we just read about in verses 1 to 3, Jesus' hometown response. And then we're going to look at Jesus' reaction to his hometown in verses 4 through 6. Here's my main point this morning. 
which we'll reflect on as we go forward together. Get on the stage, apparently. The rejection of Jesus of Nazareth calls us to consider the effects of unbelief in our hearts and marvel at the Savior's self-giving love in our redemption. Let's look at Jesus' hometown response again. Mark tells us in verse 1 that he has now left the Sea of Galilee to visit his hometown of Nazareth. This, this is some 25 miles to the southwest of Capernaum. Nazareth, as we've mentioned, is a rural village. Commentators speculate its population was between 300 and 500 residents. So it would be equivalent to Monroe, Massachusetts, which is on the border as you head into Vermont, or New Ashford, which is in the Stockbridge area. Rural. Not many people live there. Beautiful, idyllic. That's where Jesus' returns home. And the disciples, Mark tells us, are with him, verse 1. Although they play no role in this story, this experience Jesus has in Nazareth prepares them for what immediately follows, as he will send them out on mission, two by two, verse 7, giving them authority over unclean spirits and charging them to proclaim the kingdom of God and call the people that they speak to to repent of their sins. And we'll consider that next week. The disciples are with him. And this experience that Jesus has will prepare them for the unbelief and the rejection their mission will have as they are sent out in his name. So Jesus, it says, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he teaches there. So he teaches in the synagogue where he would have attended when he was growing up in Nazareth. His family are there, Mark tells us. His relatives are there with his family and also those who had known him since he was a child. So just uh, imagine this scene. He's in the synagogue teaching and the people there would have heard the reports of the miracles he had performed. We just, re we just reviewed and considered some of those extraordinary miracles in chapter 4 and 5. The calming of the storm, the deliverance of the demoniac, the healing of the, the woman with the issue of blood, and the, tr the, the astonishing raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They, they're hearing reports of these miracles. They also would have heard, right, reports of the message he was proclaiming that he is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Davidic heir to the throne. They have heard of the claims he is making himself. I'm just picturing, and I imagine you are to him in the synagogue, and there is his family, and there is his relatives, and there is there are the young boys that he played, what's it called, dreidels with as a young boy. 
there, there's, the, there's the kids that he would, you know, this is his hood there. And it says in verse 2 that they were astonished by what they heard. They were astonished, it says, at his wisdom. So he's teaching and his mighty works. They knew he was not schooled. Yet he spoke with authority and such clarity beyond anything they had heard from their local rabbi. And perhaps their astonishment for a moment rose to the level of appreciation. He's one of us. This is our guy. I love it when during a college football game, they acknowledge the high school where the player went to or the, the community that the player grew up in. Like, even though they're playing for Ohio State or Notre Dame miles away, they say, well, he, he, this guy grew up in, and they do probably the same thing for female athletes and, and some of their sports. I just love that. It acknowledges that this athlete didn't just arrive, that he grew up somewhere. She grew up somewhere. I think there's a, there's, for a moment, there's, there's appreciation for their hometown heroes speaking to them. But did you notice it turns quickly to questions? I think there's five questions that they begin to ask. Is not this, verse 3, the carpenter? That's the first question. Is not this the son of Mary? Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? says they took offense at him. So you can picture it as, as their astonishment gives way to at least raised eyebrows, and then their raised eyebrows begin to move towards incredulousness, if not suspicion. And then there's even a note of hostility. Is not this the son of Mary. You read your Bibles carefully. How normally in Jewish culture do you refer to your parents? Is not this the son of Joseph? Now, maybe Joseph has passed, but even when the father has passed, they still acknowledge the father. Could this be innuendo? Is not this the one who was born in scandal before they were married. They claimed a miracle. They were betrothed, but she was. Is not this, that smacks of offense and even hostility. What a dramatic change in tone from last week when on the shores of Galilee, those marveled, it says, at Jesus, the Son of God. But today, this, there's no celebration of his return home. There's no potluck in the synagogue following his teaching. 
There's no parade where he's given the keys to the town. There's questions. There's suspicions. They take offense at him. They fail to recognize him. They certainly fail to recognize his claim to be the Messiah. They reject him. Which points us to Jesus' reaction. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, and he quotes apparently a well-known proverb or saying where he says in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. A prophet is not without honor, meaning in Israel. A prophet would be honored except in his hometown. And among, note the groups, his relatives, and in his own household. He identifies himself, in fact, as a prophet, though we know him to be much more than a prophet. But he says, and he identifies in saying this, three groups that will not honor him. His hometown, his relatives, and his very household. Of course, we've seen this already in chapter 3, where following a long day of ministry, extraordinary ministry, healings and deliverances and teaching and the calling of the 12, his own family comes to take possession of him, and they say to those there, he is out of his mind. We'll take him home now. This has to be one of the sadder verses in the Gospel of Mark, verse 5. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. doesn't mean that he was incapable. It means, it means that, or it or doesn't even mean that his desire isn't to minister. It means that their hostility towards him and their rejection of him restricted him from doing the very things he wanted to do among them as both a testimony to the kingdom of God and its rule, but also his true identity as the son of God. It's as if, it's as if those miracles that he was doing and the teaching with which he was explaining them were signposts, bright neon signposts to point them to himself. And the passage concludes, verse 6, that he marvels because of their unbelief. He marvels at the unbelief of his hometown. He marvels at the unbelief of his extended family. He marvels at the unbelief of his own household. In other words, it doesn't just amaze him, it startles him. He's caught off guard. Yes, he's surprised. He's must be sad. He loves these people. He knows these people. He's been with these people. And these are the very people from whom no mighty works will be done because of their unbelief. What takes place in Nazareth is a warning. It's a gracious warning, but it is a warning. 
to Mark's readers. And these would have been readers who received this gospel in some of the churches Paul planted. It was written in the 50s or 60s and circulated with some of Paul's letters. This story some have called Peter's memoirs, so where Peter's ministering, this gospel, would, this is a gracious warning to them about the importance of faith, but the seriousness of unbelief. This gospel was written in order to reveal to me and to you on the stream and to us in the room, the Son of God. This, Mark wrote this gospel in order to provoke our faith in him as our Savior, as God's chosen Messiah. The entire gospel of Mark is to move us towards a position of faith in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. That's where this story is taking us. It's moving us towards faith in his Son. So the question as we now move to application is simply this. Where are you this morning in relation to Jesus of Nazareth? The people of Nazareth knew him but rejected him and therefore they were a warning to us. Where are you? Where am I? Let's take inventory. J.C. Ryle and his comments on the Gospels, which are just classic Christian literature, said that the people of Nazareth enjoyed unspeakable privileges, too many to number. They grew up with the Messiah. For 30 years, for 30 years, this rural village resided with him. They saw him. They walked with him as he went to and fro on its streets. They observed firsthand the life that he lived blameless before the community and in obedience to Yahweh. He wasn't Superman, but he was the Son of Man. And he grew up before their very eyes. But instead of stirring their faith when he announces his identity in the synagogue, their hearts are hardened in unbelief. And so they were denied the gracious benefits of receiving the Messiah into their hearts, not just their hometown, but into their hearts, so that he had to leave Nazareth and go about the other villages. In other words, they didn't take advantage of the privileges they were given in knowing Jesus up close and personally. So I think about when I was a teen in church. I knew Christians, even the church I went to. And my pastors were Christians, even though I don't think the denomination was and is not now, but was then in the 70s. They weren't perfect. They were certainly not perfect Christians. Neither are you and neither am I. But they were authentic. They were sincere. They were repentant. They were dependent. It was a privilege to know them.
But there's a clear choice, isn't there? When you are given a privilege by the Lord to respond to that privilege in faith or harden your heart in unbelief. I'm so glad mercy triumphed over judgment in my case. I did harden my heart. But the gospel broke through. The people who kept sharing it, kept sharing it. The people that were praying for me kept praying. The worship team kept worshiping sometimes in songs. I didn't know what they were talking about, but they could really shred the guitar. And I thought that was cool, so I stayed and listened to the... And then one day, one night, one moment, I believed. Don't, don't, don't dismiss the privileges you have been given, whether you're a teenager or in your heart, like me, you still are a teenager. You hear the gospel every Sunday. You hear it sung to you. You hear it prayed out of. You hear scriptures read. We hear the call to worship. We hear the message preached. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But one thing we try to be clear about, who is this Jesus? What has he done for us? And how are we then to respond to him? That is a privilege, brothers and sisters, whether this room is filled or whether there's only two people here. If it's clear and it's Christ, it's a privilege. Amen? What are we doing with it? How are you responding? Are you moving in faith towards him? This is how you know. You don't say what I can often be tempted to say. You don't have this sort of casual attitude. I know that, or I believe that. No, you're moving towards Christ, and you're saying, I marvel that you have revealed yourself to me, a sinner, as the Savior who substituted himself for me, taking upon himself my penalty, and that through your suffering and death and being raised again, I might be forgiven and born anew and brought into a relationship with you so I would have the privilege every week and every day to marvel at your mercy in saving me. Do you understand it's a privilege we can squander, that marveling? They did it in Nazareth. They didn't take advantage of the privilege, and their hearts were instead hardened. They became suspicious, right? And then it, like that Vine commercial, the suspicion grew. And then it went from suspicion to actual accusation or cynicism. Oh, come on. You're not the best. And then their cynicism gave four birth to, they rejected him. And he never returns to Nazareth. He never returns again. Their rejection was final. How astonished they must be when they passed from this earth 
these ones who had the privilege of growing up and beholding the king in all of his glory. And yet, because he still has human form in that glory, the mystery that is, he's the Nazarene. We must receive the gospel with humble faith every day in order to experience its transforming effect. Not for salvation if you're a Christian. You've done that. You've received him. You've repented. You've believed. We must receive Jesus as king every day with transforming faith if we are going to marvel and be on mission in light of his mercy today. For the, for the Christian believer, though, this passage gives us another reason to marvel. His rejection. His rejection. Oh, how that must have broken his heart. His rejection by his hometown. His rejection by his extended family that he had shared so much life with. His rejection by his own household in this point. It all anticipates, doesn't it? The ultimate rejection. This rejection of him in this moment anticipates the rejection and the hostility that will cost him his life when he will experience at his death not the people's rejection, ultimately the father's rejection as he, through his wrath upon his son, atones for my sin and he experiences experiences the ultimate rejection in that moment and these these temporal rejections of Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the words spoken by the prophet he was despised and rejected by men he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief he was despised and we esteemed him not this prophecy is partially fulfilled in Nazareth, it confirms his experience in Nazareth, confirms his identity as the suffering servant of Isaiah. But there is now a cloud descending upon the pages of Mark as the Son of God moves towards Jerusalem. And this rejection here and the ultimate rejection there is part of the purpose and plan of God to redeem and save and rescue sinners like you and sinners like me. David Wells, a retired scholar who served at Gordon-Conwell, writes this in a book we shared with you several years ago at the time of his retirement. Jim's my last quote. Jesus entered our life with all its quarrels and discord, its arrogance and deceit, all of its godlessness and self-serving spiritualities and misleading religions. He was met not with the worship which was his due. He was met by hostility against himself. 
But such is this love, this self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-abasing love, that he freely and joyfully gave himself to do what he knew had to be done, knowing all that was entailed. He was met with hostility from Nazareth. He will be met with the hostility of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He would ultimately experience the abandonment of the Father as he was met with the righteous wrath of God that sinners deserve for their sins. He was despised and rejected by men. He was crushed for our iniquities. He marveled. He marveled at their disbelief. So let us this week resolve. in our times of fellowship together over snacks and coffee and childcare. Let us this week resolve in our times of personal prayer on Tuesday and during the week, our times of devotion to scriptures. Let us marvel as we serve the good people of Franklin, good in air quotes, our neighbors, sincerely. Let us marvel as the psalmist did in Psalm 118, in words that are often quoted out of context, but in so doing, miss Christ entirely. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. May God, by his grace in our hearts, cause us to marvel. Don't you want to marvel more this week? I do. For the rejection of Jesus calls us to consider the effects of unbelief. Where has my unbelief caused my hope and faith and trust and joy in Jesus to dissipate. Acknowledge that. Confess that. Receive forgiveness for that. Ask for a new heart and be transformed by that. And in its place, May God, by his mercy, cause us to marvel at our Savior's self-giving love for our redemption. The proof of the truth that we're marveling are not those vines that are growing. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which are always displayed in community. That's a corporate passage. Love, joy, peace, patience, Faithfulness, self-control. When Bauer has self-control, you know it must be a miracle of God's grace because I'm marveling. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, my, my words cannot do. I pray your word will and continue to do.
which is lead us as we close in worshiping Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and the Redeemer of us. Thank you for, Lord, these gracious warnings from the pages of Holy Scripture. Only six short verses, but Lord, upon reflection, they stir our hearts to take serious any and all evidences of unbelief, bitterness, a lack of desire or affection for you, and to bring them now by faith to the throne of grace as we marvel together. Fill our hearts, Lord, we pray, with more of Jesus and cause us this week to say with the psalmist, Lord, he has done good in our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.